Good evening and welcome to the Noahide Nations class on Proverbs. My name is Doug Taylor. Great to have you with us. I'd uh, like to start tonight by clarifying some comments uh, that we made last week or that I made last week. Um, I talked about how the punishment for philosophical sin, a philosophical sin is something uh, that is separate from the seven Noahide laws for non-Jews. The seven Noahide laws for non-Jews are uh, the halacha, the Torah law, that we have to uh, keep. Uh, whether we understand it or whether we like it or whether we agree with it, that's the law that God set down uh, through his written and oral Torah for us. But beyond that, then we get into the realm of, of philosophical issues. Um, it's been uh, suggested that a person could uh, sit, lay down on his couch and drink beer all day and be drunk and yell at his wife and he would never actually commit a violation of the seven Noahide laws. Yet we would hardly consider that to be positive or laudable action. So we talked about the whole realm of philosophical sin and we suggested or I suggested that the uh, the punishment for philosophical sin is really the consequences of your actions. Uh, and this is not this giant laundry list of things uh, out there, but that every action we take has a consequence to it. Uh, and we can either choose to live in accordance with uh, the science of consequences, which is all about the study of Proverbs, or we can choose actions that produce negative consequences. And we get those consequences in our uh, everyday lives, uh, very practically according to the laws of nature. Uh, and those actions that we take also affect our souls uh, over time and that that has an impact on our place in the world to come. What I didn't mention at that time and what I need to amend is to include the point that there is, as we've touched on in some previous classes, also God's personal providence. We live under the laws of nature uh, and we're affected by those, uh, general laws of cause and effect that we can see. But there's also another system called God's personal providence or God's hashkacha. And that can also impact a person's life depending on his or her level. Uh, so a person could get consequences for certain actions that are different than just the laws of nature all by themselves if God's personal providence intervenes. Now we can't necessarily know for certain when that happens. Uh, my understanding of uh, the way it works as, is that uh, God's personal providence intervenes once a person or can intervene uh, at a person who has reached a, uh, a certain level. Um, of knowledge and understanding, but I have no formula for that or, uh, you know, I can't uh, tell you exactly when that would occur or if in any given situation you could even determine for certain whether God's personal providence is acting or whether you're just seeing the laws of nature. But God's personal providence does exist. We see examples of that in the Torah. Uh, and so that would be an additional possibility to people experiencing the consequences of their own actions, the ones they'll get practically in this life and the impact that those actions have on their souls uh, in the world to come. So I just, uh, first I wanted to make sure that that point was clear that uh, while we do live in a world of cause and effect, uh, there is God's personal providence uh, and that's, that's an ad a system that is in addition to of the laws of nature. That's the way that I understand how this works today. Now it's also possible that with continued study uh, my knowledge may change tomorrow. Uh, the whole subject of sin and punishment is a deep subject and one that deserves some very careful study. It wasn't my intent in this class to go into that in depth, but what I did want to do last week was give a framework for a way to think about philosophical sin um, which, as we discussed, is different than a, a violation of the seven Noahide laws, which would be a, a halakhic sin. Okay, then I also gave an example uh, of a computer programmer. 
uh, centered around the idea of sin and repentance. And I said that a computer programmer who writes code for a living, computer code, would, when an error occurred, when his computer program crashes, go back through that code line by line and figure out where his error was and then fix it and then make a mental note never to make that same coding mistake again and that once he did that he'd move on. And I submitted that this is the Torah approach to sin. It's a practical analysis of consequences and it isn't, I said at that time, about fear and shame. And I also said that this is the essence of repentance. In other words, you, you know, realize that you have done something wrong. You go back and make an analysis to figure out where you made the mistake. Uh, you correct it uh, and you move on from there. So there are three clarifications I want to make around this topic. First, the Rambam indicates, Maimonides indicates, the, re the repentance calls for a person to be ashamed by his sins. And then that's an integral part of the repentance process. Now, my opinion and my understanding is that the Rambam is talking here about sincere regret. In other words, it's shame. When a person makes a mistake and they know they did it, they natu natu naturally should be ashamed of their actions. And that they then have regret about those. And that regret should be strong enough to make a person want to promise never to make that mistake again. So I had said before that uh, this is not about fear and shame. But the Rambam clearly indicates that uh, shame is called for uh, in, in the repentance process. That a person needs to be ashamed for his sins. Now, my comment about fear and shame was intended to speak to the approach of some religions that make fear and shame sort of a standard operating approach to life. In other words, you're supposed to feel ashamed, you know, practically for being alive, for everything. You're a horrible sinner. You can never be uh, forgiven. You know, all these kinds of things that just sort of uh, beat on a person. Uh, that's not the kind of shame that I understand the Rambam is talking about. The shame in the case of repentance is, in my view, a different kind of shame than the kind of shame that paralyzes a person or causes him to feel that he's worthless. Um, in, in my view, my understanding of it is the shame discussed by the Rambam is shame that promotes one to action. Uh, the action being a promise never to repeat the sin and to root out the cause of the sin. So the shame becomes a positive motivator for better action, not a debilitating state of mind. And so I want to make sure that that distinction uh, there is clear. There are different kinds of shame. Uh, and my understanding is that the Rambam is not talking about a debilitating state of mind that paralyzes a person uh, and makes them feel that they're totally worthless and causes them to not be able to move. But rather, it's a, a shame of one's action that causes them to want to change something uh, to uh, you know, move forward to a different place, to promise never to do that again and to root out the cause. And, and to that end, the third point I want to make is that the shame should motivate a person not only not to repeat the sin, but to also dig out the root cause for why they committed the sin in the first place. I mean, when we make a mistake, okay, when we do something that we shouldn't have, there's something that caused us to do that. Now, I can go back and say, okay, I, I'm ashamed that I did that and I'll never do it again. But a further question then is, well, what caused me to do it in the first place? And can I dig down to that root cause and understand what is going on within me, within my emotions, within my personality that caused me to make that mistake? And then take some practical steps to deal with undoing that, that root cause, so that I don't repeat the same sin over and over again, but that I get down to what the real root cause of it is 
and I deal with that. And I take practical steps to make changes in my life uh, that will aid me in never repeating that sin. Okay, so those are the clarifications that I wanted to make on the comments that I made last week. Any questions on that or any aspect of it? Okay, so let's swing back then to our study of the verses in Proverbs. And we are at Proverbs chapter 14, verse 14. And the verse reads, and this translation is according to Rashi, One with dross in his heart will be sated from his own ways, but above him is a good man. One with dross in his heart will be sated from his own ways, but above him is a good man. So the very first thing we have to ask is, what are the questions? And let me expand on the facts a little bit, just so we get those squared away. Dross is a, uh, a, a product that comes when you mine silver. So when you're mining silver out of the ground, there's a thing that's called dross, and, and those are the impurities uh, in the silver. Okay, and so in the process of refining silver to be pure, you get rid of the dross. And Rashi also adds that a person with dross is a wicked person. Okay, so given that, what are the questions that we might ask around this verse? Okay, Naomi, you said, what is a wayward heart? Okay, and I'm guessing that your translation is probably saying uh, that, whereas this one says dross in his heart. And how does it get satisfied by ways? Yes, and what is the ways? Yeah, very good question. If, if I take Rashi's position that a person with dross is a wicked person, then to read it again, it, it says, one with dross in his heart will be saved from his own ways. Um, it would be that a person who is wicked in his heart will be sated from his own ways. Well, how are the wicked going to be satisfied with their own ways? That's a good question. Um, and what are those ways? What's it talking about? And then it says, above him is a good man. Well, what does it mean to be above? And what is a good man in this case? So... Rabbi Moskowitz, uh, as I understood his approach, went like this. There are certain people who do correct actions, but their motive is incorrect. Okay, a person who does correct actions, but their motive is incorrect. And this, he's indicating, is the person with dross in their heart. Their motive for doing something is for their own personal aggrandizement. Okay. Now, can this person develop into a good person? Yes. I mean, everyone starts out this way. Uh, as you study Torah, you start noticing that you're not up to par. And you see this through the study of Proverbs, and then you have to start undoing it. Every human being starts out with an incorrect motive and then over time hopefully develops to be doing things from the correct motive. So why does Rashi consider a person like this a wicked person? Well, according to Rashi, a wicked or righteous person is not defined by his actions by, but by what's in his head. According to Rashi, everyone starts out as evil. Now, if you think about your evil inclination, which is your inclination to do evil things, and your good inclination, which is your inclination to do good things, the evil inclination has about a 13-year advantage over the good inclination. Because your, your uh, ability to reason some of these things out doesn't really start until you're about age 13. Up until then, you're really just operating on your emotional instincts. A baby 
you know, or a five-year-old is not sitting there rationally working out a situation. You know, they know what they want and they're going to pound, you know, uh, their fists on the table and scream and cry until they get it. Um, so by the time you get up to the point where you uh, can start to reason through and think through uh, the kinds of ideas that we're starting on in Proverbs, you're about age 13. Um, and that's the time when it's a good time to start uh, a child in, in learning through these ideas. So Rabbi Moskowitz suggests that free will doesn't mean that I have two equal choices. It means that I'm basically evil and stupid, and I have a choice about changing that to the ideas of reality. In other words, life is that you start out evil and, and stupid, making poor choices, because you're operating on the basis of your emotions. And then you have the choice when you get to a point where you can understand these ideas, you have a choice of whether to undo that or not. And we undo that through the study of Proverbs and the study of Mishlei and the study of the Torah uh, and learning uh, character development. So you can't teach a child to be a thinker about these kinds of ideas at an early age because what happens is they get attached to the act instead of to the idea. In other words, they're too attached to their emotions. It, you should teach them to do correct acts and acts of justice. That's absolutely true for a child. But if you get a child involved in philosophy, uh, the kinds of issues that we might talk about in this class, at too early an age, it can cause them to uh, ruin their ability to think about these things because they can't necessarily attach to a universal idea. They're attaching to a specific act. You teach a child to say thank you when someone gives them something. And you know, you've probably heard parents say that. Somebody gives them something and the parent says to the child, what do you say? And the child says, thank you. And they learn, okay, this is an act I do when someone gives me something. They don't grasp and really probably aren't capable of grasping at that point the underlying idea of why you do that. So you teach the child how to do correct acts and, and justice at an early age, but you don't necessarily get them involved in the philosophy around that until they get to that age of uh, you know, awareness, if you will, right around age 13, give or take, based on the child, uh, where they can begin to grasp these ideas at a philosophical level. Now, a person has to have enough humility to know where he is and only accept the things that are for the level that he's on. And he shouldn't try to go beyond that level. Uh, the idea that anybody can understand anything is incorrect. People can only understand what they're ready for. And it is a mistake to introduce ideas either to yourself or to another person if you or they are not ready to hear them. Um, this is very, very important in the world of Torah because sometimes people want to get involved in ideas that are way beyond them. Um, and that's like the guy who walks into a martial arts studio or a karate studio and wants the instructor to teach him how to jump up in the air and kick three opponents all in his first lesson. That's just not how it works. You have to start with basics, and you have to master the basics before you can move on to more advanced things. And trying to do something that's advanced beyond your ability before you're ready for it can result in a, in a martial art in injury because you're just not ready. You don't have the basics uh, enough to know how to do that particular thing. Similarly, in the world of Torah, um, it's, um, you know, sometimes we, we learn certain ideas uh, and we've spent a long time working on them and then we encounter somebody who is maybe just coming out of another religious approach. They're just starting maybe to question uh, the religious approach they're in and there can be a tendency for us to want to like give them everything we've, we've learned, you know, over the last five or ten years all in the first 30 minutes we're talking to them but they're not ready for it. They need to go very slowly and understand 
one idea clearly first and then be able to build on that and build on the next one and build on the next one. And trying to, you know, give them the whole thing all at once uh, is a a mistake. Uh, They won't be able to grasp it. They won't be able to understand it. Similarly, sometimes people involved in the world of Torah study want to get involved in ideas that are way, way beyond them. Um, Because somehow we think in America or in, you know, maybe certain other parts of the world, but I think this is sometimes affects a lot of us in the West, that somehow getting to the top, whatever the top is, is like a laudable thing. And we should do that really quick, as fast as we can go. And just, you know, like, give me the shortcut. I just want to, you know, have it all. And, and that's just not the Torah approach. The Torah approach is to take it one idea at a time and get that idea clearly. Then you can move on to another idea and another idea and another idea. It's, it's just like exercising. If you go into the, to the gym and try to lift, you know, the 300-pound uh, weights before you're ready, you're likely to rip a muscle or a tendon or both. But you got to start out with the 10-pound weights, and then you work up to those, and then you got the 15-pound weights and the 20-pound weights, and, and so on, and you slowly build on that. Now, there are different levels of wicked. The best level of wicked is where you do the right act for the wrong motive, because at least you're attached to the right act. But if a person becomes attached to the physical pleasures, for example, someone becomes attached to parties, you know, they want the party life, then it's going to be very hard to transition from the life of parties to the life of learning. A good person is a person that lives in the framework of true ideas. Uh, Interestingly, Rabbi Moskowitz pointed out a lot of people condemn condemn King David because he had an affair. And their thought is, well, I would never do a thing like that. But King David's framework was righteousness. Yes, he made a mistake and he had to deal with that. But he is a tzaddik, a righteous man, because his whole framework of life is the framework of Torah. Once you have a framework of Torah then you have to keep investigating, okay? And you need education. If you think about Jacob, uh, Jacob was punished because he raised his child incorrectly. Joseph, you know the story, was sold off by his brothers as a slave to Egypt and eventually became the number two guy in Egypt, saved, uh, you know, was instrumental in saving lots of people from the famine that came and eventually is reconciled to his family. Well, Look at Jacob. He thought his son had died. And he had to live with that for 22 years. Now, he, God set up a situation to help him undo the area of his emotions that caused this. So Jacob made an error in, in his child rearing. And God set up this situation, helped him undo that area of his emotions. Well, that took 22 years. Uh, now, you, the question could be asked, well, after 22 years, when he finally straightened this out, was there any real value to it? I mean, he wasn't going to raise any children anymore. All his kids were grown. Uh, so there didn't seem to be any practical benefit in undoing that. But if you have an incorrect view of life, that is the dross. It's a defect in your perfection. And it has to be undone, even if there is no practical benefit. Once you make the mistake, you need to undo the emotion, even if you never make the mistake again. And that's what I mentioned earlier when we were talking about what you do in the process of repentance. It's one thing to say, I'm never going to make that mistake again. But you've got to go back and undo the emotion that caused it, even if you never make the mistake again, because... That incorrect view of life, that is the dross, the defect. So the righteous person investigates not only the act, but must also investigate his emotions and his motives and what caused him to commit that act. And then he's in a position to be able to take practical steps to undo those emotions and perfect himself in that area. Okay. Are there any questions on that verse or any of this?
in that case, we'll move on. Uh, we are now at Proverbs chapter 14, verse 15. And it reads, A simpleton, and the Hebrew word is pesi, believes anything. And a clever person, and the Hebrew word is an arum, understands his steps. Okay, a simpleton believes anything, and a clever person understands his steps. So, what are the questions? I'll suggest a couple of possibilities. First of all, why does a simpleton believe anything? I mean, that's what the first part of the verse says. A simpleton believes anything. Why is that? And when it says a clever person understands his steps, what does it mean that a clever person understands his steps? What's that trying to get across? And how are the two halves of the verse related? King Solomon didn't just throw stuff together randomly here. Um, there's a reason that, uh, that he put these, these two things together. Um, okay, and Naomi, what, what, is, uh, what is anything? Oh, very good question. So when it says a simpleton believes anything, what's anything? Yeah, what does that mean? Um, and, and who's a fool? And who's a clever person? And uh, what is correct? What does he believe? Okay, good. So, a uh, uh, Rabbi Moskowitz indicated like this, a pesi, that's the simpleton defined in the first half, is a fool who is naive. He believes anything that you tell him. Okay, there are different kinds of fools. And this one is a fool who is naive. He'll believe whatever you say, in other words, there's no critical thought at all going on inside him. He just has a certain acceptance. Um, it's like a person before any development of the mind. Uh, they just accept whatever people say. And there are some people who spend their lives like this. They will believe whatever people tell them. Okay? I suspect con men love to find people like this because they can you know, con them out of their wealth or con them out of various things. So this is a person who is completely naive, believes whatever you tell him. Now, by contrast, the clever person goes beneath the surface, while the simpleton, the pesi, is completely superficial. The clever person, the arum, thinks through what he's doing and why he's doing it. And one of the things that he thinks through is his happiness. What his happiness really means, whether it's important, how to get it, and all those kinds of things. And he'll work it out step by step so that the understanding is clear to him. And at the end then, he'll know what the steps are to his happiness. Okay, now according to the Art Scroll Commentary, the Me'iri says that an intelligent person should be discriminating about what he believes. And to be discriminating, a person has to do the research and collect the knowledge so that they can be discriminating, which gets us back to being involved in the world of learning, the world of understanding ideas, the world of questioning and making sure that before we accept an idea, we see all the different aspects of it. We've asked every question we can think of around it and we've answered those questions so that the idea is completely clear to us. Okay? Any questions then on this verse? It's really talking about the difference between the superficiality of the simpleton and the depth uh, and the process that the clever person uses uh, in his life. Okay, Naomi, you've brought up a really good point. It will, it's difficult to understand uh, many things in, in these days of, uh, of deceit. Yes, uh, there's a lot of deceit in the world. Uh, and that's why one has to be very discriminating 
uh, about what one accepts or believes. Uh, not to say I'm suggesting a person should be a skeptic, but you should approach an idea with the sense of you're trying to break it down. Uh, not because you're trying to use questions as a weapon, but because you want to understand every aspect of it. Um, uh, and uh, Naomi, you suggested that we are easily misled. Um, uh, that's true, and that's why this training is so important. Uh, we ask for divine help and assistance, but we are expected to use our own minds. And so, for example, if somebody comes to me and says, hey, I've got a great business deal for you, um, you know, uh, you, you can uh, get wealthy overnight. Well, as soon as somebody says that, my radar pops up and I say, hmm, gee, if you can get wealthy overnight, why are you coming to share this with me? And what's really behind this? And how many other people have you spoken to? And do you have any credentials? And is this a published methodology? And will you explain it to me in detail? Or is there some secret? And on and on and on. Lots of questions, questions, questions. Um, if you hear a news report, uh, you know, you're, you're quite well justified to question it. How does the reporter know that? Uh, did they go interview all the people involved? Uh, do we have first-hand accounts of this? Uh, if I see in the financial news, stocks drop on oil worries. Well, okay, the stocks dropped. Uh, so how does the person who wrote that headline know that the stocks dropped because uh, people were worried about oil? Uh, you know, on that particular day, probably millions of people traded stocks. So, so did the person who wrote that headline actually go interview all those millions of people and ask them, oh, did you, did you sell because uh, you were worried about oil and collect all that data? Or what is behind that? We have every right to and we should critically question the things that we hear to determine, oh, is this really true? Is this right? Um, I have uh, looked at certain websites that put out news. And yet, if you critically look at what they're saying, you can tell by asking questions that they have a certain bias in the way they report that news, certain adjectives they use, certain ways they say things, certain ways they put out headlines that are designed to make you think something's a certain way when you read the details and find, well, no, that headline doesn't really say that, and so on and so forth. Um, so uh, you have to ask uh, lots and lots of questions. Um, and Naomi, thank you. I'm glad uh, that, that getting it straight uh, has, has helped. Um, for those of you that aren't familiar with it, Getting It Straight is a book of uh, short articles that Rabbi Moskowitz and I wrote together uh, a number of years ago that were published in a local newspaper here, and then we compiled them into a, uh, an e-book, which is now available on masora.org, uh, M-E-S-O-R-A.org. Um, but we go through those, those, um, uh, uh, those stories are, are built around this process of questioning. Um, and Terry, you're right. The headline's frequently chosen by someone besides the author of the article, uh, and they may be motivated, you know, by a desire to get readers, to attract people, something along that line. But in both the headline and the article, it's our responsibility to question and try to understand what's really going on here, why is this happening, uh, what do we really know from this article? What do we not know? What are the facts and what are the interpretations? And there's a very important distinction between a fact and an interpretation. Um, you know, if, um, uh, well, one of the most famous was a, a, um, an example given by uh, Maxwell Maltz many years ago in his book Psycho-Cybernetics. A guy goes into his psychiatrist's office and says, you know, I just lost $100,000 in the stock market. I'm ruined and disgraced. And the psychiatrist says that you would be a whole lot happier if you would separate the facts from your opinions. It is a fact that you lost $100,000 on the stock market. It's only your opinion 
that you're ruined and disgraced. What's a fact? What's, what's an opinion or an interpretation? Uh, and uh, th those get blurred a lot in the news and in things we hear. It's very important to separate those very carefully and question incisively so that we can uh, get down to, okay, what really are the facts here and what is the interpretation? Or sometimes the word spin can be used. You know, what are the facts and what's the spin on the facts? Uh, because people are trying sometimes to get us to believe a certain thing based on a set of facts uh, that don't necessarily support that. Um, I had an experience once in my local community here where uh, we got a flyer that someone was spreading around that our city council was going to take away the library and that they'd voted to do that and, you know, come down to the city council meeting and, and we've got to band together and stop the city council from doing it. It made the city council sound like they were a bunch of villains, you know, intent on destroying the library. And I thought, this just does not sound right to me. And so I went down to the city council meeting and I sat through and listened, never needed to say anything. And once I got the whole story, the facts were, uh, were that the city council had taken certain actions because of certain things that had happened, and the, the actions they'd taken were very logical in their attempt to save the library, but somebody had taken those facts and put a completely uh, inappropriate spin on them, making it sound like the city council was a bunch of villains that were trying to destroy the library. This happens, I'm sure, You've noticed in politics all the time. Part of our job is to ask a lot of questions, to cut through all that underbrush and get to what's really true and then try to act on that. Um, and, and David, you've suggested that you know most news has an agenda because stories are, are in that all stories are coordinated to fit that agenda. Uh, there certainly is, I think, uh, on a, an attempt by a number of outlets uh, to, you know, put the news in a particular light in order to sell newspapers, magazines, or whatever media outlet that they're doing. Um, you know, the, the, uh, in, in many cases, uh, we have to remind ourselves that for most media outlets, their main business is selling advertising. And in order to do that, they have to get readers or viewers. And so to the degree that they can make the news a certain way or put a certain uh, you know, uh, uh, shock value to it or whatever it might be, they may feel that that might attract uh, more people to that particular business. Other people could have a particular bias in that they, have, uh, they may hold themselves out to be a, a news source but they have a particular view on who's right and who's wrong, and they're going to uh, be strongly influenced, tell the news a certain way to try to convince you of their particular viewpoint. So we have to be very careful to try to separate one from the other and get down to what are the facts and what are the interpretations. So we are at uh, Proverbs chapter 14, verse 16, and the verse reads, a wise man fears and turns away from evil, but a fool is secure and passes over. A wise man fears and turns away from evil, but a fool is secure and passes over. So, what kinds of questions pop up around that verse? So I'll offer a couple suggestions. Why does a wise man fear evil? Okay. And David, is it that a fool doesn't see the danger? Okay. So a fool is secure and passes over. Good suggestion. Uh, and let's hold that thought. Naomi, you've asked what's fear here. Okay. Good. Why is the fool enraged? All right. And... Now, uh, different people translate the verse differently, uh, and the one, uh, the one that I went with is, uh, a fool is secure and passes over. I think others uh, take a, a different approach on the words. Um, and Terry, yeah, passes over sounds kind of strange. What does that mean? What does it mean for a fool to pass over? So let's start 
with the first half. <clears throat> what does a wise man fear? There is a difference between our five senses and the world of ideas. We have a certain sense of reality from the five senses. I, you know, I knock my knuckle on this table and it feels hard. Uh, I feel a certain temperature around me. I taste food and so forth. We get a lot of things from our five senses. Okay? The purpose of Proverbs is to extend that sense of reality to the world of ideas. The man of Proverbs, the wise man, has the same fear when his mind tells him that there is a certain danger out there and he sees the consequences very clearly compared to when he sees some clear danger with his physical senses. In other words, he sees a situation, for example, um, that he can, he can see in his mind the consequences of a particular course of action. He has that same fear as he would have if he were standing in the middle of the road and he saw a big truck barreling down toward him. He's, the world of ideas is that real to him. So it, for him, for the wise person, there is no difference between the world of ideas and the world of physical reality because the world of ideas is so clear to him. He sees those ideas, he sees the reality of them just as clear as he sees the truck coming down uh, the middle of the road. The fool passes through these things with security as if there's nothing wrong. And David, I think that's uh, getting to your point. The commentators give various explanations for this. Let me back up. Uh, Naomi, you ask, so what's, you ask, what's fear? Fear is not like, oh, I'm so scared. It's not, it's not trembling in the corner kind of fear. It's seeing the consequences of the actions that could happen and uh, recognizing those consequences so clearly that I won't act in that manner because I don't want those consequences. Um, so it's fear in the sense of recognizing the conse potential consequences of my actions and acting accordingly. That is my understanding of what it means when it talks about a wise man fears and turns away from evil. He sees what those consequences are of going down the wrong path, of make, taking the, the wrong action, and he, uh, he turns away from those because those consequences are as clear to him, even though they might not happen for you know, hours, days, weeks, months, years down the road, those consequences are so clear to him that it's as if they're right in front of his face uh, in, in a physical way like a truck would be if it was coming at you in a road. Okay. Um, now, the fool passes through these things with a sense of security as if there's nothing wrong. And the commentators give various explanations for this. The Ralbag indicates that the fool, because of his rage, provokes someone that he should, in fact, be afraid of. So the fool's misplaced confidence causes him to act impetuously, which brings him to harm. Okay, so the Ralbag is taking the position that a fool that's angry provokes a person that he should, in fact, be afraid of. It's like going in and sticking a stick in a hornet's nest and whacking it around a little bit, you know, and have, not recognizing, gee, what's the consequence here? The consequence is the hornets are going to come out and sting you. Uh, the, the fool would be so uh, confident that he's right to whack on the, um, uh, uh, on the hornet's nest that that causes him to act without thinking, act impetuously, and that causes him harm. Okay? That's the Ralbag's interpretation. The Rabbeinu Yonah's interpretation, he indicates that a fool thinks he won't sin. He's confident, oh, I wouldn't make that mistake, even though he moves very near to evil. 
So the Rabbeinu Yonah uh, is, sees this in terms of uh, the confidence that a fool has that he won't sin. Rashi says that the term passes over means transgresses. So in, and he has two interpretations. In one interpretation, Rashi indicates that the fool strengthens himself in order to transgress, and then he falls. And in a second interpretation, Rashi suggests that the fool trusts, that is, he's confident no harm will come to him. So it's, I guess it would be like he thinks he's, he's immune to consequences. And he can go do whatever he wants, and he's not, he's not going to get any consequences. The Vilna Gaon suggests that the fool trusts that God will forgive him after he sins. So apparently he's thinking, ah, I can go sin because, you know, God will forgive me, so what have I got to worry about? So the verse seems to be talking, that's my understanding of what the, the Vilna Gaon is saying, the verse seems to be talking about the way that a wise man deals with the world of ideas. And the wise man deals with those, uh, the world of ideas in seeing them, the reality of those very, very clearly. That causes him to see consequences and avoid danger versus the life of the fool who thinks that he's very secure and that false confidence ends up resulting in harm to him. Okay. Any questions on this verse? Okay, I think we've got time to squeeze in one more. Uh, Proverbs chapter 14, verse 17. says, A short-tempered person acts foolishly, and a person of evil designs will be hated. A short-tempered person acts foolishly, and a person of evil designs will be hated. So what do you think the questions are here? Okay, Naomi, are both of them related to each other, the foolish and the evil person? Very good. King Solomon put them here in the verse together for a reason. And part of our challenge is to see if we can abstract out uh, what message he was trying to get across to us. So good, good question. So I would also ask, why does a short-tempered tempered person act foolishly? And isn't that so obvious that it seems kind of odd that King Solomon would tell us that? I mean, you would sort of think, yeah, well, a short-tempered person, that's practically, you know, a definition of foolishness. So when it says a short-tempered person acts foolishly, it's like, well, yeah, and what else do I need to know here? So that's a question. Uh, why is a person of evil designs hated? Um, and what holds these two parts of the verse together? Naomi, to your point, what, what's King Solomon trying to get across? When we see that Solomon has written something that seems very, very obvious, usually it means there's something else there for us to look at. Because he wouldn't tell us something that we would obviously already know. <clears throat> so... Rabbi Moskowitz said that evil designs is equal to thought, that is, evil thoughts. In other words, where you think things through for evil purposes. And he said that there are two types of people. One acts on his anger for immediate gratification. In other words, he acts impulsively. And if you have that emotion, that emotion will make you act foolishly. Uh, and the harm or the hurt that you wanted to cause is immediately recognized by other people. So uh, a person who just impetuously acts on their anger, that's going to be recognized by other people. Now, by contrast, the person who acts with thought to do harm has it worked out in a way to fool people? He's evil, but he doesn't act impulsively. Okay? The verse is saying that even he will be hated. Now, so you've got two kinds of people here in the first half and the second half. You've got the short-tempered person. 
he kind of makes his anger known, and people obviously recognize that right off the bat. The person of evil designs, he's thinking it through. I mean, he's going to get that person that he wants to get, and he's not just going to let his anger out there so you can see it right away. He's going to plan and scheme and figure out a way to do that. But even he is going to be hated. Why? Why must he always be caught? We know that evil will ultimately be punished, but we need to work out the how and the why. And in this case, when the wicked person carries out his evil plan, it's going to be noticed that people are getting hurt. I mean, at some point, you're not going to be able to keep that a secret. Now, he will be more successful than the person in the first half of the verse who just reacts to his emotions because the person who reacts to his emotions, people can immediately see, oh man, he's angry at me, I better protect myself. Okay, The guy in the second half is probably going to be more successful initially at you know, getting back at the person he's angry at, but he's going to make enemies eventually. So the verse seems to be telling us about these two different type of people, the short-tempered person and the person of evil designs and the results that they'll get. They'll both eventually uh, uh, you know, uh, be seen for what they are. And the person in the second half will eventually be hated, but he will for a while be more successful because he's not blurting out that anger immediately, but he's holding it back and he's planning and scheming to get back at the other guy. And uh, so we've got two different types of, uh, in this case, angry people who will get different results, uh, although eventually they will be uh, caught and uncovered. Okay, any questions on this verse? In that case, we will stop here for the evening. And I want to thank you all for being here. I really appreciate uh, having you here and the opportunity to share, uh, share this journey with you. And hope you will be able to join next week.